Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Stephen Simpson. Stephen is Academic Director of the Charles Perkins Center and Professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. After graduating as a biologist from the University of Queensland, Steve undertook his PhD at the University of London, then spent 22 years at Oxford before returning to Australia in 2005 as an Australian Research Council Federation Fellow, then ARC Laureate Fellow. Stephen developed an integrative modeling framework for nutrition, which was devised and tested using insects. Together with his colleague and friend, David Robenheimer, Stephen wrote Eat Like the Animals, What Nature Teaches Us About the Science of Healthy Eating. In the episode, Stephen shares the single macronutrient every animal craves to satisfy above all others, the real reason why we overeat things like chips and ice cream, tips for reconnecting to your taste buds that can feel like they've been hijacked, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. If you're a wine lover like me, but haven't made the switch to natural wines, trust me, you're going to want to listen up. Alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles, which is how they've been able to sneak in sugar and other additives to their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines identified this problem and has come to the rescue. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from all industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wines, even the most expensive conventional wines can give me a headache and just make me feel overall gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment, or just click through the link in the show notes. And one last thing. If you've been on a weight loss roller coaster for years, trying everything from keto to Weight Watchers to exercising a ton to eliminating sugar, but nothing has worked, I'm so happy we are connecting. Outside of hosting this podcast, I help health-motivated individuals lose weight for good without giving up carbs, eating clean 24-7, exercising a ton, or other BS. Unlike extreme approaches that compromise your physical and mental well-being, I help you lose 5 to 50 pounds for the last time so you can start living your best life as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or connect with me on Instagram at The Health Investment. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I love hearing from you. All right, it's time to learn all about how the animals eat and how we can eat better from Stephen. Enjoy!
Rick Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast all the way from Australia. It's a real pleasure, Brooke. It's great to be here. I was mentioning I've interviewed, I think, only one other guest from Australia, and she was amazing, Dr. Catherine Tonks. So, so far, we're batting two for two of great guests from Australia. (laughs) In select company. Yeah, exactly. Well, I know you're a co-author of your book, Eat Like the Animals, and friend David wasn't able to be with us today, but I would love if you could start by sharing your background in education and then possibly kind of how you two teamed up to write this book. Ah, well, there's a there's an entire story there. So I'm uh, Australian and I'm now currently living in Australia, as is David. Um, but many years ago, in 1987, we first met at the University of Oxford. Huh. And David had arrived from uh, South Africa, which is where he's from, uh, to do a PhD in uh, Oxford at the University of Oxford. And he and I found ourselves together about to supervise a first-year biology course in the woods at Whiteham, which is a an ancient British woodland where we took the first-year students. Their very first practical course was to go into the woods and try and understand the ecology of those woods. David and I were put together to look after this group of students, and we got talking and soon realised that we shared a united passion in nutrition, in feeding behavior, in trying to understand why it was that animals make the choices that they do when they eat. And in our case at that time, animals meant insects because we were both working on insect systems. So we spent a couple of hours wandering through Whiteham Woods, completely distracted by our conversation. We ignored the (laughs) students largely, they got on with themselves. Um, And by the end of it, he had decided he was going to do his PhD with me. Uh, I was a very young academic at the time, only three years older than David, and he'd come from South Africa. And we started uh, our work together at that point. That was in 1987, so um, more than 30 years ago. And we we started a journey to really try and understand the fundamentals of nutrition. And that led through many different adventures, which we detail in the book, to ultimately uh, a new understanding of the human obesity epidemic. So our backgrounds are different. Um, We're both biologists. David is more of an ecologist uh, with an interest particularly in evolutionary biology. I had a background in Uh, the neurophysiology and physiology of appetite in locusts and monkeys. 
And we both had a shared interest in nutrition and feeding behavior, the sort of behavioral interactions that de define what animals eat in relation to their biology and their environments. Um, so that's kind of what we are. We're not traditional dietitians, that's for sure. Right, more kind of coming from the research perspective. Yes, and very much taking the perspective that nutrition had been kind of downplayed in, in the study of biology. Most people had concerned themselves with sex and death, which are the two <laughs> other great, um, there's three great themes in biology, sex, death, and food. Um, mm. And uh, sex and death have lots of attention, food less so. And we decided we wanted to to raise the the um, the, the, the standing of nutrition, if you like, as a, as a biological study. Because most people, of course, who work in nutritional biology are either mainly concerned about um, producing animals for food, human food consumption, or concerned about human diet. And um, we, we were biologists who, who really sought inspiration um, from the natural world. If animals have solved the problem of nutrition, multiple times in so many different ways. How did they do it? What's common? And we as an animal share some of that fundamental biology as well, we reasoned, and we should be able to learn something really significant by understanding nutrition across species in biology. Hmm. So fascinating. Uh, anytime I have an expert, which is all the time, like yourself, I always kind of like to start at the basics and just kind of pretend like none of us know anything. So I'd love if just in your own words, you could start by describing what is a calorie and what is nutrition really? Ah, so a calorie. Now, there's a really simple answer to that. And there's a really ridiculously complex answer. Calories simply units of energy. Uh, if you burn something, you release energy, and a calorie is a unit of energy. The formal definition of a calorie gets a little bit more complicated, and it sounds pretty weird, um, and that is the amount of energy you need to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree from 14 and a half to 15 and a half degrees Celsius. So, but forget that. It's simply a unit of energy. Okay. So, a unit of energy. So, I guess before we even break into the realm of nutrition, what would you say are some of the common misconceptions about calories out there? Oh, uh, look, I guess the, the, major confusion about calories is that um, calories are all the same. Now, at one level, if you're trying to heat the water in a bathtub, they are all the same. But the source of those calories um, is very different. So there's three principal groups of nutrients, the so-called macronutrients that yield calories that our bodies can burn to release the energy we need to stay alive. And that's protein, carbohydrates, and fats. And those three sources of calories aren't necessarily the same in all of their influences over our health and our physiology and our behavior. So that's a really common misconception, I think, or it's a confusion, the confusion between calories as a source of energy 
and the nature of those calories and the way that the nutrients that deliver those calories influence our appetites and influence the, our, our health once we consume them. A common sort of meme or picture that's coming up in my mind that many people have done is how they'll put a, a donut versus broccoli. And they'll say yeah. 100 calories from a donut isn't the same as 100 calories from broccoli to kind of illustrate that. But I'd love if you could touch on how do each of the macronutrients serve us in different ways? Yes. Yeah, so, so the three principal macronutrients, we'll start with protein because um, that's, uh, it turns out to be a key player in, in our story. And I think in all of our stories, protein is different from the other two macronutrients in that it contains nitrogen. And animals uh, need nitrogen. Plants do too, but plants have a, a special way of gaining it, many plants anyhow, and that's to take it out of the atmosphere because nitrogen is the most abundant element in, in the atmosphere. We can't do that. We have to eat our nitrogen, and we do that in the form of protein. And what those proteins do, and that nitrogen does, um, when we break it down into its constituent amino acids, is it enables us to build new tissues to grow, to have babies reproduce, um, and generally to, to maintain our, our functions biologically. So proteins are really important. They're not just a source of energy. They're a source of um, growth and structure and signaling molecules. Peptide hormones, for example, are made from proteins. So they're proteins. Uh, carbohydrates are our principal source of energy in the diet, and they ultimately um, derive from plants, and plants make the carbohydrates that are on the planet from thin air and sunlight. Essentially, that's the trick that they've evolved, photosynthesis, to enable them to make carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are of multiple types. They're either very simple sugars like glucose and fructose, or those sugars can be joined together in longer molecules. Table sugar is a, a joining together of two molecules, fructose and glucose. Or they can be chained together in even longer molecules called starches. And some of those starches are so hard to digest that they become indigestible fiber. And that's the most common carbohydrate on the planet, uh, a, a material called cellulose that we can't digest. We use to make clothes and paper, but it houses the cells of all plants and it's the principal source of fiber um, in the diets of anything that eats plants. So carbohydrates are a, a whole range of things from simple sugars all the way through to things that we can't digest and, and intermediate length uh, and complex carbs um, amongst the starches. So that's carbohydrates, and we need them for all manner of things. We, we principally burn them for energy. You don't absolutely have to have carbohydrates in your diet, but most of the energy in all human diets happens to be in the form of carbohydrate. And then the third macronutrient are the fats. And again, they're of many different sorts, and you've 
heard of saturated and unsaturated and mono and polyunsaturated and omega sixes and omega threes, etc., etc. So there's a complex category of molecules that that are called fats or lipids, and they serve all manner of functions, not only as energy stores, and they're the most efficient way of storing energy in in fat cells, um, but they also lubricate our joints and they um, they make up the membranes of all of our cells. Um, they contribute to just about um, all the fat-soluble vitamins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again, a hugely important group of nutrients that not only yield energy but do a whole stack of other things too. And they're the three macronutrients. And then there are dozens of what we call micronutrients, and they're essential vitamins and minerals that uh, we require in tiny con- in tiny quantities, but um, are essential in all manner of ways in our biochemistry and our in our bones and in our in just about everything that makes it, uh, us work. Essentially, the um, the electricity that crackles through your nervous system and makes your heart beat runs on currents that are driven by sodium, potassium, calcium, and other um, ionic um, mineral salts. So they're, they're collectively the nutrients. So there's dozens and dozens of them that comprise diets. And that is why nutrition is so complicated. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, just with you explaining that, you know, you don't think about that when you go to grab an egg for breakfast or a salad for lunch or whatever. But it does, I think, get really complicated, and especially when you start getting to the root of why it's gotten so tricky and how our brains have kind of gotten so confused. Uh, I know you write a really great quote, which I'll read, and then I would love for you to touch on that. You say, all mammals, including ourselves, are lucky to start life in such ideal circumstances because mother's milk is as close as we'll ever come to a perfectly balanced diet. It contains proper proportions, everything a newborn needs to grow. But after a mammal is weaned, nutrition becomes a much trickier undertaking. So can you touch on that? I mean, that is such a can of worms there. But what essentially hijacks our brains and why do we end up getting so confused once weaned off of the perfect milk? (laughs) Well, I I think at one level we, we don't get confused because we've evolved ways of managing that extraordinary complexity. So, um, but we've confused ourselves. We've, con- we've uh, we humans have confused ourselves, I think, in two ways. One is by overthinking nutrition and the other is by completely and radically and rapidly changing our food system in a way that has hacked our fundamental biology and we'll we'll talk about that but the transition from breast milk um, which is a single food so a child need make no decisions about its diet other than left or right I suppose that's about <laughs> um, but there once you once you um, leave breastfeeding and and begin um, weaning and then start eating foods then then things get complex because foods are mixtures um, of 
macro and micronutrients and other things and different foods have different mixtures and different combinations of foods will produce different nutritional outcomes and it all suddenly starts to sound horrendously complicated and if you just simply were to think okay I'm going to try and make sure today that I eat my optimal intake of of the 80 or thereabouts different nutrients that I need <laughs> Which foods will I start with and how will I track my um, trajectory over the day? You'd need computers and dietitians and degrees in, in, in nutrition. And even then you'd find it difficult. Um, yet, and we start the book with this story, if you follow, um, as PhD student Kaylee Johnson did working with David, um, a single baboon for 30 days and observe everything that she eats, you'll find that even though she eats 90 or more different foods, and this is the case of this particular baboon called Stella in South Africa, you, you would think on that basis that she's just eating anything that she can get her hands on. But actually, when you, when you distill it down to her nutrient intakes, she was tracking very precisely a protein to non-protein energy ratio that remained stable day by day over those 30 days. So somehow she innately is making the right um, nutritional decisions for her health um, in the face of considerable complexity in her food environment and she doesn't know anything about it. She's just doing it because she's evolved the capability to do that. She's got the biology that she needs to do that. And we set about trying to understand how um, evolution has solved this problem innumerable times across the animal kingdom. Um, and that really is the story of Eat Like the Animals. Right. So then... We as humans, I know you talk about how we end up overeating fat and carbs. Right. Why is that? Yes. Yeah, so if you go back over the last 50 or 60 years and, and you look at the um, origins of the global obesity pandemic, um, it's been driven by people eating more energy and particularly in the form of fats and or carbohydrates. And all the while, protein intake has remained virtually the same. Mm. And people, of course, then focused on whether it was fats or carbohydrates that have driven obesity because they're, they're the extra calories that have put on the extra inches on the global waistline. And we pointed out um, that actually the fact that protein intake had remained the same across that period of 50, 60 years Perhaps therein lay the, the key to the mystery. Um, and that stemmed back to understanding that we gained by studying insects all those years ago when David and I first met. Um, we began with an experiment with locusts, uh, grasshoppers in the laboratory, and showed that they have a specific appetite for protein as well as a specific appetite for carbohydrate and another one for salt. And 
those appetites help the animal if it's got appropriate food choices to balance its diet precisely, just like Stella the baboon did. But if you put those appetites in an environment where they have to compete with one another, and you do that by putting the locust on an imbalanced diet, then what happens is the protein appetite wins. So the animal will ensure that it eats the right amount of protein, even though it may have eaten either too many or too few calories in the form of carbohydrates and fats to get that protein. And that was a really important observation because it showed to us that the appetite for protein is very powerful. And we then went on to show across many animal species uh, that all animals have specific appetites for different nutrients and protein is among the strongest of them. And that certainly seems to be the case in humans. So we have a very strong protein appetite. And if you dilute protein with extra fats and carbohydrates in the diet, which is exactly what we've done over the last 60 years as a global population through the mass um, influx of highly processed, um, industrially processed, ultra processed foods, then what happens is our bodies are maintaining the same protein intake day on day. And to do that, we have to eat more calories to attain that same target intake of protein because protein is diluted by all these extra fats and carbohydrates. Mm. Wow. So I know you speak of five appetites. So you mentioned it's protein, fats, carbs, salts, and the fifth one is... So it was calcium and sodium are the two strongest mineral salts um, appetites. So, uh, yes, the three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. And uh, we've studied those separate appetites in a range of of different species. Fat appetites are particularly prominent in predatory animals, animals that eat other animals because... Um, fats are the principal source of energy, not carbohydrates in their diets. Um, but yes, sodium or salt, as we'd call it, um, and calcium are the two other principal um, appetites that you see. And they're for um, minerals that you don't need a great deal of, but they're incredibly important. Without sodium, none of our nervous systems would work. And mm. um, in the case particularly of calcium, we'd have real challenges with our skeleton, for example. Um, Or if you're an egg-laying bird, you couldn't lay eggs because you couldn't have an eggshell. And if you're a crustacean, you can't deal without calcium because you'll have no exoskeleton. So calcium is a really important structural component of the diet, but it's also a really important electrical part of our, um, our wiring, our hearts, our muscles, and our brains run on calcium ions along with sodium ions. I know salt can kind of get a bad rap and people will switch to a very low salt or no salt diet. Right. So can you explain, I mean, is that justified at times or is that something we shouldn't be doing? No, that's a, that's a very good question. So yes, there's a, there's a, a clear relationship between um, excess salt intake and hypertension and all manner of cardiovascular outcomes, which are not good. 
Um, there's also, of course, um, a significant relationship between eating too little salt and bad outcomes because you die. Um, you, yeah. need, you need salt. So like any nutrients, not too much, not too little. It needs to be a balanced intake, which is why we talk about target intakes for different things. Now, in the case of salt, we have a specific appetite for salt, um, as do many animals. But normally, you would gain your salt in the wild um, by feeding selectively on high salt foods. Now, you see this in you probably watched uh, animal documentaries, wildlife documentaries, where you see um, elephants traveling into underground caves to to find salt licks where they can they can consume salt as a separate source, uh, or butterflies puddling in salty pools to get the sodium that they need to to reproduce, for example. So that's fine, but if you if you force the salt appetite to compete with the macronutrient appetites, it will always lose because you simply can't eat enough food to get twice as much salt um, if you're requiring an extra milligram a day to reach your target. You're not going to eat um, an extra kilogram of everything else to get it. So that just doesn't happen. So what instead happens is your salt appetite loses and you'll eat more um, of you'll eat more salt as as a as a passive consequence of being driven to eat more of whatever it is that you're eating to gain enough energy and enough protein, carbs, and fats. And what that means is that if you add salt to ultra processed foods, and that's what's happened, of course, then our bodies abandon regulating it. They just eat to get the protein that they need. And in so doing, you end up eating way more salt than you need. And yeah. it's the combination, therefore, of salt in processed foods that's causing the problem. That's subverting our appetite. Our appetite isn't able to work for salt under those circumstances because we just have to ignore it um, to listen to our protein appetite. Mm. So then with all overprocessed, hyperpalatable foods, I mean, they're created to be the perfect mix of yep. salt, fat, starch, okay. I mean, all yep. the things so that we just continue to overeat them. So are those the foods that, that are just kind of hijacking our animal instincts of what we should be eating? Yeah. So, so you've, you've hit it exactly right. So the, what, what's happened is typically foods, haven't evolved to be eaten. Um, most foods avoid trying or try <laughs> to avoid being eaten. Um, they they run away or they're um, they're defended with spines or poisons or whatever. Um, very few foods in nature have evolved to be eaten. Um, breast milk is one, uh, and another is interestingly nectar in plants and flowers, which is designed to attract pollinators. So, but in in the main, you don't design foods haven't evolved to be eaten. Um, but that's not what's happening now. Of course, um, ultra processed foods have been designed to be eaten, and they've been designed under the the forces, the market forces uh, that drive 
the um, success of, of companies, and in this case, the big food companies. So to do that, what you do is you combine things that normally don't exist together, sugar, fat, salt, not in a single food. And if you put them together in a single food, it becomes really hard to resist. Um, and that's going to distort your um, appetite system. It's going, to, it's going to take you away from your ideal trajectory and nutrient space in the way that we sort of describe these things. So you, you get misled into eating those extra calories, but you're not in so doing, you're, you're not yet satiating your protein requirements. So you've got to continue to eat more. And that's a real problem. So if you, if you divert us away from a balanced diet, which is what our appetites would normally in, in a, a natural food environment guide us towards, you're going to start forcing us to have to overconsume calories because the things that matter most to our regulatory systems, our protein appetite, is not yet um, is not yet met. Hmm. Does that make so sense? Yeah, it does. So to get kind of back on track, let's say, and eat more like the animals and be more instinctual, is it enough to, let's say, focus on whole foods and protein and just kind of prioritize both of those things? Or would you say it's more complex than that? No, I think I think it's actually as simple as that. Um, because the, the, the problem is that we have had our appetite systems hacked. It's not that we've lost them. And that's, that's a, a really positive story, I think. If we'd lost our appetites, if somehow we'd, we'd just lost the capacity um, to regulate our intake of these key nutrients, then that would be, and that would be a real mess. But <laughs> those appetites are there. They're still there and they're still working. What we have to do is to put them in a food environment within which they make sense, they, within which they can work for you rather than working for the processed food industries, because currently that's what's happening. Mm. Uh, and if you think about it, I'll give you a really lovely example, actually. When you're short of protein, your protein appetite system kicks in and you start to crave savoury flavours, um, umami flavours, salty, savoury, yummy, lip-smacking sorts of flavours that you'll find in um, you know, steak or mushrooms or what have you. So they're umami flavours. Now, they become highly desirable and you seek them out when your body is saying you need more protein. But if the nearest umami hit happens to be a bag of um, potato chips flavoured with, with um, you know, barbecue salt or what have you, then that's going to seem like protein. It's going to taste right. It's got those umami characteristics that our protein appetite systems have evolved to listen to, but it's nothing but fat and carbs. So you'll eat those, you'll desire those, um, yet you'll still be seeking further protein and have to eat even more to get it. So that's we've we've called those sorts of snack savory snack foods protein decoys. That's <laughs> an example where our appetite system here has been hacked. 
Hmm. I'm wondering, because so many people now are kind of switching to more plant-based eating, maybe even going full vegetarian or vegan. Is it possible to get enough protein through plant sources, would you say? Or would you advise turning to animal sources or at least fish at some times? Oh, look, um, yes, of course. You can can actually get the right amount of protein um, on just about any uh, dietary pattern or dietary ideology. Uh, you need to think more carefully in some cases than in others. And and I think it is true to say that on balance, um, plant-based proteins individually are less well-balanced in their amino acid composition than are many of the animal proteins. But if you combine plant-based proteins in a diet, you can have a really healthy high protein and 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 well amino acid balanced diet so that's absolutely fine and you get all the benefits of the fiber which dilutes the calorie density of the diet and provides the sort of appetite control that is expected again by our um, evolved biology you get all the micronutrients the, um, the, the the phytochemicals and other things that may be helpful so plants are a really uh, remarkable source of energy and nutrients and physical structure, um, which is pretty much how our digestive systems have evolved. Um, they release their nutrients more slowly than highly processed foods. They feed the microbiome because the carbohydrates are typically a little bit harder to digest and there's high fiber content, which can fill the gut, all sorts of things. Mm. And then on top of that, um, if, if you enjoy your animal-based proteins, then, then fine, I, I, I certainly do. Um, and they can contribute and do contribute to a balanced diet as well. There are many ways to attain nutritional balance. Mm-hmm. Just prior, predominantly through thinking about protein and whole foods, less reliance on the over-processed stuff. Right, right. Use them as treats, not right. as a habitual part of your diet. As, you know, in Australia, about 50% of calories come in the form of um, what are called ultra-processed foods. Um, in the US, it's it's even higher in, in areas. Um, we, did, we studied... Um, the N. Haynes data a little while ago with um, um, Carlos Monteiro in, in Brazil. And there, there are, in, in the highest um, quintile, fifth of the population in the US, there's an average of 80% of calories in the form of ultra-processed foods. Wow. Um, they're dilute in protein. Um, they require eating far more calories to attain the same protein intake, and that's what people do. They're very low in fiber. All of the correlations in natural foods with all the other micronutrients that you need have been broken, um, and it's a disaster. Yeah. 
Well, I, so I know obviously low fat diets were super popular in the eighties and nineties and now, and then Atkins at one point and now it's keto with low carb. So it seems as if people are just kind of focusing on the wrong things and maybe by eating low fat or low carb, they're, they're consuming more protein and that's why they're having success on these things. Is that what you would Say. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's two really important points there. One is that the um, the carbohydrate fat wars that have waged uh, they've raged since um, the, the the 1970s have have been entirely pointless um, <laughs> and have missed the point. And the the point is that it it isn't about a single nutrient; it's about the balance of nutrients. And and in that case fighting over whether it was fats or carbs missed the thing that was sitting there unchanging and driving everything, which was protein. But that doesn't mean we should concentrate only on protein. You need to consider the interactions between protein, fats, and carbohydrates. So um, it's, it's, it's kind of pointless to fight over single uh, nutrients and try and blame them. And when you do... And you you devise public policy on that basis. Um, you you find that what happens is the food industries will just substitute what you're saying not to eat with one of the other components. Um, and the famous <laughs> one here is you know saturated fat and sugar. Um, meantime, protein appetite remained consistent, <laughs> and it didn't matter. To eat, whether you dilute with fat or carbs, you're still going to have to eat more to, more calories to get to your target intake of protein. And it just seems that if you're, let's say, trying to cut out a bunch of carbs because you're going keto, you're also probably eating a lot less refined grains and processed foods. So that could have something to do with how much more energy you feel and how great you feel. It's not uh, that all carbs are the yeah. same. Yeah, <laughs> There's no, carbs... In vegetables and whole grains, and probably if you ate those things versus the refined grains, you would have the same outcome. Yeah, absolutely right. So anything that causes you to think about your diet and not eat ultra-processed foods will will be beneficial. Uh, The danger is that that anything can be madness in terms of (laughs) its its ideology or 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 its scientific foundations um now and i we, we even thought at one point about setting a, a challenge to nutrition students by making up uh, a nutrient and saying that um please can you go through the literature and try and find evidence that minimizing this nutrient um is associated with with better health outcomes um and basically, it doesn't matter what it is. You can you can say to somebody, you need to reduce your salt intake, or don't eat carbs, or avoid gluten, um, or don't eat um, uh, or, or don't eat this particular food. Don't eat beetroot. Um, you can make <laughs> up anything, and people will probably end up healthier simply because they're cutting out the rubbish in their diet and they're thinking a little bit more clearly about what they're eating. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't mean it's scientifically justified. So right, those ideologies come at the cost of of science uh, are not informed by science. 
Well, and then all of the food companies are brilliant because they catch on with the latest buzzwords. Right. So if people are going keto or gluten-free, then all of a sudden those labels are popping up on the front of packages. And so then people are back to buying keto ice cream bars and keto chips. And it's just, I mean, it drives me nuts, but I'm sure for you, it really drives you nuts. (laughs) No, that's right. But, but you're you're exactly right too about um, you eat less uh, you eat fewer calories and you eat less if if you remove either fat or carbs it doesn't matter which from your diet because you concentrate protein Mm. and you need to eat fewer calories before your protein appetite tells you to stop eating Um, and that that that's kind of simple and it's it's a sort of unifying explanation for a whole set of things that we see when people develop uh, or change their dietary patterns. Um, and, and that's what's really, I think, excited us as scientists. It, it's, it means you can take something horribly complicated like nutrition and distill it down to some really key um, elements, some really key principles that have tamed that complexity. Taking it too far down and counting calories and considering nothing else as we started the conversation is too simple. That doesn't explain enough. Mm. Considering protein, fiber, um, and non-protein energy as three things you need to worry about, um, that really helps capture so much of the complexity of nutrition. And, And, of course, ultimately, that's why animals have evolved probably only five appetites rather than 105 appetites Mm. because those five together in natural food environments will help guide animals to balance diets because they'll get all of the other things they need as a consequence of following those appetites. You don't need to measure how much selenium you need. You don't need a special appetite for it um, or for magnesium or for whatever else because these things are naturally correlated in whole foods with the things that you are measuring, like protein or carbohydrates or fats. Mm, Yeah, wow. Well, so grateful for you sharing all of this knowledge with us today. Uh, The final question I ask each of my guests is based on the title of the podcast, and it's, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? What it means to make the health investment, it seems to me the biggest health investment we can make is to um, put our faith in our fundamental, exquisitely evolved biology and give it the opportunity to do what it evolved to do, to make our health uh, the best it can be by putting it in an appropriate whole food environment. We should be starting to um, really shop with our minds and eat with our appetites. Mm. Wow. Beautifully said. Where can listeners follow you and find you and where's the best place to buy your book? Well, Eat Like the Animals is available now, I think, in 12 translations around the world. And um, you'll find that in all good bookshops and online um booksellers and eat 
uh, eat like animals is our Twitter handle. And if you want to really hear more about what we do in relation to a broader project to try and ease the burden of chronic disease uh, across the globe, then you can follow us at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, which is this huge and extraordinary place we've built where we've brought together everybody from philosophers and historians and creative writers and physicists and engineers and nutritionists and evolutionary biologists and medics and more to really start tackling the complexity um, of chronic disease and trying to provide solutions that involve fixing the entire societal system. Wow, so many awesome things going on in Australia. It just makes me want to visit there more than I already wanted to. <laughs> well, let's hope COVID allows that one day. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, I know. It's not looking good right now, but yes, fingers crossed for more global travel soon, sooner than later. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. Again, so appreciative of your time and your knowledge, and I look forward to staying connected with you. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Brooke. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.